Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we are continuing our series on the prophets, and here we will be looking at the book of Daniel chapter 6, continuing our discussion that we began last week on chapter 6. If you've been helped by this podcast, we would be so grateful if you would leave us a review in iTunes. Those positive reviews really help us to get in front of a broader audience and get the Theopolitan way of reading scripture in front of more people. We really hope that you enjoy this episode. We want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts, James Bijan, and Jeff Myers. And Brian Motes, as usual, is helping us uh, with the technical side of things and keeping things rolling for us. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Daniel, and we have begun Daniel chapter 6. Our last episode was devoted to going through roughly the first half of the chapter, and uh, we're going to pick up from there, and then uh, finish out chapter six today. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den and of Daniel's, the conspiracy against Daniel by the satraps and commissioners who are envious of him, uh, who are engaged, as Jeff said last time, in uh, uh, mimetic rivalry. They, They don't like him being exalted above them, and so they're trying to bring him down. Uh, and uh, to do that, they get Darius to sign this document that uh, prom- promulgates a law that prohibits petitions. Uh, the word is something like seeking. I think, James, in your paper on this, you talk, you use the word beseechment as a general category for the things that he's prohibiting. Any any approach or any any seeking of a god or man other than Darius, he sets him up, set himself up as a universal priest. I don't think he sets himself up as God, but he sets himself up as a universal priest mediating the petitions of all the people. And we looked at some of the ins and outs of why he might be doing that uh, at this particular stage in Persian history last time, or Medo-Persian history. Uh, I want to pick up at the beginning here on something Jeff said last time, alluded to, and that that's the typological dimensions of this chapter. It's pretty striking how much the experience of Daniel in Daniel 6 resembles the experience of Jesus in the Gospels. Like Jesus, Daniel is under suspicion of powerful people, and uh, there's a conspiracy formed against him in order to trap him, an effort by evil men to trap the righteous, and they use the law to do it. They try to prove that he's, they try to prove that Jesus is violating the law. He is violating the, the traditions of the elders, but he's not violating the law of Moses. Uh, in Daniel, it's the, it's the law of the Medes and Persians that's at stake, not God's law, but uh, they try to set up a trap which will lead to his condemnation to death. Daniel is put into a sealed uh, sealed den, a kind of cave. He's there overnight. Darius is in the position of the women who visit the tomb of Jesus at the break of day on uh, on Easter, the first Easter. Uh, and uh, Daniel has survived. He comes out of this place of death and he's elevated and exalted. He's not only raised from the dead, but the chapter ends with him being prospering and having success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, if those are two different people. Uh, one of the interesting things about that, uh, that kind of death and resurrection theme, uh, Darius ends up the chapter confessing the living God. He, in fact, that's the way, that's the phrase he uses when he asks Daniel if he's survived the night. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? That's in verse 20. Uh, this is the God of life. 
And it's not, it's interesting that Dan, it's not just Daniel who goes through this kind of death and resurrection experience, but Darius seems to participate with him in that. Uh, uh, Darius, while Daniel's in the lion's den, in this place of death, in this sealed tomb, as it were, Darius himself is going through this night of fasting. No entertainment is brought to him. Sleep flees from him. And he comes out the the, the next morning into new life, confessing the living God, issuing a new decree that exhorts all of the people in his kingdom to tremble before the God of Daniel. Uh, And so not only do we have this kind of gospel scene of Daniel going through a death and resurrection, but we have a kind of participation in that death and resurrection by the king. And in some ways, the king is the focus of the chapter. It's the king who issues the decree. Daniel's off scene much of the chapter. People are conspiring against him. And uh, you have the satraps and commissioners meeting with the king on several occasions uh, while Daniel's not there. Uh, The only words that Daniel speaks in uh, the chapter on verses 21 and 22, he speaks from the grave, as it were. Uh, But what's happening in the chapter is happening to Darius as much as it is to Daniel. So there's a kind of participation in the death and resurrection of of this uh, prophet, similar to the way that we participate, of course, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The other thing I wanted to raise at the beginning here is a question about law, which we discussed last time. This chapter is definitely focused on the issue of law. Verse 5 introduces that uh, even before the king passes a decree, uh, the the conspirators realize that the only way they're going to trap Daniel is by finding something with regard to the law of his God in verse 5. That phrasing is not found uh, up to this point in Daniel. We see Jews obeying the law but they don't do it as an appeal to the law. There's no mention of the law of God. But here at the beginning of chapter six, we have a reference to the law of his God. And then we have decrees, statutes, edicts, and so forth, different uh, different terms for, uh, for uh, uh, public decrees, public law. Uh, so we have this conflict set up between the law of his God and uh, the law of the Medes and Persians. That's the, uh, that's the way that the, that the chapter is set up. And we said some things last time about the fragility of law. The, there's, uh, there's a kind of parody of that because obviously the law is not irrevocable. It's, it, is, it is overturned by the end of the chapter. But I also wonder if there's another dimension of law that's being highlighted here because what, uh, what happens to this law is that it does things that Darius does not intend it to do. He passes it, uh, at least doesn't realize it's going to apply to Daniel. He's alarmed when it applies to Daniel. But the law kind of gets out of his control uh, it's not out of control of the conspirators. This is what's happening is exactly what they wanted it to happen, but it's almost as like like the law once it's passed has this power that uh, kind of carries events lo- along with it, and even the king is carried along with the law. It's not simply his instrument; he's he's the one who signed it off, but it's it's subject to uses that he doesn't anticipate or intend. Which there's a, I think, an interesting parallel here with some of the ways that Paul describes the operation of Torah as a kind of power that uh, enslaves, that kills, that puts people under curse. And a hint, I think, that of the uh, of the idea of even civil law as kind of as a kind of power. Once once it is enacted, a law has this kind of inertia and energy to it that accomplishes things that things that none of the people who passed the law intended. And in the American context, I think of something like the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, where the Civil Rights Act is is passed in order to protect the civil rights of uh, African-Americans primarily, 
But then it's been used to, the scope has been broadened in all kinds of ways to encompass uh, uh, sexual minorities. uh, And you have this very revolutionary, this kind of radical uh, legal agenda that's all built on this law. But it's not the law as intended by the authors, but it's the law as it's being used. And it it seems to, it certainly surpasses the intentions of the original One of the most thoughtful blog posts I've ever read is one called Meditations on Moloch on um, the old Slate Star Codex blog. And he talks about the way in which our laws, our systems, our inventions, our technologies have a sort of life of their own. So we presume since we created them that we are their masters, but we can be trapped within systems of our own creations. And these laws that we have created, these systems and structures can end up trapping us within within them. We're acting in terms of them. Think about the power of the internet or um, the way in which the government works so that who can turn the internet off and give us freedom from it if it became tyrannical over us? In many ways, it assumes a power and inertia of its own, likewise with government, where no one is actually exercising human power over the system. Everyone is exercising their power within it, and we can be trapped within such a structure. And as Peter has said, within this book, we see a lot of the pretensions of man to power and the way in which even in his exertion of power, he ends up creating powers over him. And it's only God who can exercise power truly in a way that is personal and truly sovereign without ending up with that power coming back to bite him. Um, we can presume that we exercise power when we really do not. Uh, the things of our creation can often end up taking liberties with us. I think that's a great point. And I think a lot of it is brought out by the particular vocab that Daniel uses in this chapter. We've spoke about kind of palettes before and the choices of words that people use in order to paint a picture. And the way this law is portrayed is something that's not going to pass away and that picks up on some of the language of chapter two and it says that god is the one who causes kings to pass away and whose kingdom won't pass away you know and it's said to be binding which is the term used of chapter four when nebuchadnezzar is, is sort of bound with this band of iron and, and bronze i think it is and it's um it's inscribed this law which is the sort of same word used for when the hand of god inscribes on um belshazzar's wall and so uh, a lot of this i think is intended to portray this law that's assumed godlike qualities and, and has become sort of too big too big for people to control it's it's almost like the lions it's this untamable force and and so just as the law turns against darius the the lions later turn against the medes who've tried to use them in order to dispose of, of daniel and i feel that all that is is very latent in the chapter people are are playing about with things they haven't got the power to control and once once this law is passed and the control is presumably in place uh it's the king who is distressed verse 14 he's distressed he he labors uh till the sun goes down to try to rescue daniel and then a little later on um Uh, The king goes in verse 18 when Daniel's actually in the den, spends the night fasting, no diversions, can't sleep. 
And then he hastens to the den in verse 19. And then in a tone of anguish, he cries out for Daniel. The fascinating thing here is that the king's feelings, his uh, affections, are described so carefully and so vividly here. And yet, Daniel, his feelings are not even mentioned. He just goes about his business. Uh, There's not a single mention of Daniel being upset, concerned, fearful, uh, anxious about what might happen. It's it's rather striking the difference between the way the king is portrayed and the way Daniel is portrayed in his confidence, in his uh, trust in Jesus. I mean, <laughs> when I read this, I thought, uh, okay, if Kierkegaard was writing an essay on this, like Fear and Trembling, that he did with Abraham and in Genesis 22, he might have Daniel, you know, all tied up in knots <laughs> about this about this particular law and wondering what he should do and you know all that. But just like Abraham, Daniel has faith. He he does what he needs to do, and uh, that seems to be a model uh, for the Jews uh, when they're in situations like this. Peter has already discussed the relationship between this story and the story of Christ. In many ways, it anticipates what we see in the resurrection. But there are also ways in which this is a model of Israel's own experience. Um, The lion-like nation is Babylon itself. This is the first year of the reign of the king after the the Babylonians. And as we go back through the story, we can see allusions to the lion-like character of Babylon, for instance, in names like Ariarch, um, lion-like. And then later on, we're told about this lion with the wings of an eagle that is given the heart of a man, which seems to be a reference again to Babylon. And this den of lions seems to be an image of Babylonia itself. This is the first year of the reign of Darius and As we go on in the book in chapter 9, we see that it was at that point that um, Daniel was reflecting upon the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah concerning the 70 weeks. We've had a reference to seven weeks or seven times in relationship to Nebuchadnezzar, 62 years in relationship to um, Darius. And now this is the first year when after he's come to the throne. So it seems to map on to the 70 weeks of years that we find later on, but in a microcosm. And so Israel's experience of Babylon is of a den of lions, but the great powers of the empire, whether it's Babylon or the Medes and the Persians, they think that they are the ones with the power. But here you see that the den of lions is something that they presume is a means of the the power of the state being exerted against all who resist it. But in fact, they find themselves at the mercy of that power unable to control the lions themselves. And yet the God of Daniel is able to shut the mouths of the lions, whether that is these particular beasts or whether it's the mouth of the great empire. Right. And in the, in the uh, immediate context, of course, the lions correlate with the commissioners and satraps uh, who are, verse five describes them as mighty men who are conspiring against Daniel. They're the predators. And so uh, there's a there's a uh, correlation with Babylon in general, but also particularly in the in the chapter with the uh, conspirators who try to eat the pieces of Daniel. Yeah, something else we could bear in mind is the backdrop of chapter seven. So there we have 
the beasts out of control kind of roaming the world and it seems that the saints have got a, a terrorized by them particularly by the fourth beast and he is actually said to change times and laws and it, it seems to be that changing of laws that particularly um affects the saints badly and and so sort of i feel like behind uh, behind chapter six uh, is all that imagery going on uh where, and so the lines are, are to be seen in this more general way and and, and the men who accuse um daniel are, are almost beastly in, in a sense and daniel on the other hand enjoys this kind of inaugural inaugural moment he is like the son of man at the end of chapter seven when the beasts are subject to his reign you know there he is enjoying a good night's sleep and, and all the lions have had their mouths shut and it, i guess it's just a picture of the the rest that can be enjoyed by the christian in a chaotic world um even before the the final state has been uh, uh has come to pass yeah that's a good connection james uh, do you think that what we're what we're given here in six about the lion uh the lion's den and the lions actually serving god and protecting daniel and administering judgment against the enemies of daniel and the jews that that might be an interpretive key for Daniel 7 and all of these beasts that arise. They are intended to be guardians for Israel. They are intended uh, to um, to keep, to guard Israel. But, of course, that they go bad, but that's not the original purpose of these, these empires. Uh, they're, they're supposed to offer a safe place, a peaceful place for the people of God to live huh yeah it's interesting i, I hadn't thought of that hmm. one thing we do see in the description of the beasts is how many of their actions are things that they're given permission to do or instructed to do or made to do they're not actually the ones ultimately in control of their actions um it is god who determines the behavior of the beasts whether that's the lions in daniel's den or whether it's these great empires bestriding the world i want to reiterate a point i was making at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the episode about the the way things get out of darius's control one of the uh, one aspect of that is the way that darius has become subordinate to these to these people that he's commissioned the satraps and his commissioners the at least the ones who are conspiring against daniel first of all they, they enlist him unwittingly into their own conspiracy they make him a co-conspirator by uh, convincing him to sign the law. And then uh, once Daniel is found and he's being accused, uh, they're coming in before the king, making these accusations. They, they're the ones who caused the distress that Jeff was talking about because they bring, they bring Daniel as an example. He's from the exiles. He's an outsider. He, he's insulted you. He pays no attention to you. Um, and so that, uh, they're the ones now that are in the more superior position and it seems even more so in verse 15 when they come back after the king has spent a day trying to get out of trying to find some way out of this dilemma they come back and say you know king you're you're hoist by your own petard as it were you are you're caught by your own law you can't go back on it and they're the ones that are actually exerting the authority so part of the dynamic of this law gaining out of the king's control is that it's being manipulated by these conspirators to control the king as much as it is to control Daniel and, and uh, take down Daniel. 
so a question that I could throw into the mix maybe is why doesn't I'm not sure we answered this last time why doesn't Daniel um just shut his windows or pray at a different time he it feels like he wants to make a public um display of his disobedience to this law and um I guess I'm intrigued as to why you think he does that and whether that's almost a, a model for how Christians are, are to behave in certain situations. If I decide that my government, for instance, has like overstepped its bounds in terms of like the prohibitions it's putting on religious worship, then should I, rather than try and meet in secret with a few Christians, gather in a very public way because this public thing needs to be disobeyed in a public way? Um, thoughts? Well, I think you're you're right that it, Daniel. At the very least, we can say that Daniel um, doesn't mind doing this in public. He's not choosing to do it as some new thing, so he's not he's not doing it as a the publicness of his of his prayer is not a, a response to the decree. It's just continuing what he's always done. So yeah, he's choosing to do it in public, and I, well, I think there are various reasons for that. Uh, James, you, you've reflected on this yourself in the paper that you wrote on the chapter. But I think that I think it does provide some kind of model that then Christians should this decree is wrong. It violates God's law, and the Jews in Daniel six uh, and Daniel and Christians in other kinds of circumstances rightly defy it because it is uh, because it's not a just law, and uh, a public defiance is a is not just a, a disobedience, civil disobedience, but is an act of it's an act of publicity. It's a political act. Of uh, uh, so, I, I do think that there's a model here for the way Christians react to restrictions uh, on uh, public worship, on prayer, and so forth that are in, in various countries today. I would argue it depends a lot upon the specific commandments in view. Um, are these things that are are these commandments that are specifically designed to um, to some idolatrous end or? designed to single out Christian worship, those are the sorts of considerations that I think we need to have first. Um, and within the New Testament, there are such strong statements about submitting to authorities um, to the extent that we can. It seems to me that there are a lot of considerations that we must first go through before we determine to take a stand like Daniel does, does here. Well, I think that I guess that I don't think that applies here, Alistair, because the the law is not targeting Jews. The law is the law is just prohibiting seeking of any god or man besides the king. And Daniel's Daniel violates it uh, not because it targets him, but because it's just wrong. <laughs> well, it's targeting religious worship specifically. It's not something that's more generally applied to um, assemblies of persons. Um, for some reason that does have, um, I mean, that's for some prudent reason of politics and public safety, things like that. Those sorts of reasons have generally been recognized by the church to be legitimate under certain circumstances. If buildings are unsafe, if there's a pandemic, if there are other cons considerations, there are legitimate reasons for restricting these things that are not designed at manipulating or um, constraining or dictating forms of worship. So that, that feels right, but couldn't even Darius here argue that that wasn't the intention of 
this law that this you know that there is a potentially um divided and divisive kingdom and he's just trying to unify people in what's going to be a public publicly beneficial way you know couldn't couldn't you make similar arguments here certainly i but the actual force of the law is against um it is very clearly a law about worship and that will affect the appropriate worship of the people of god for reasons that are not just legitimate ones for um I mean, if we're thinking about public safety, things like that, there are ways that you can continue to worship God in an uncomfortable way, but you're still worshiping God outdoors in the rain. If this is really serious, you can do these things. But the fact that you're continuing, if you're emphasizing just normality and worshiping God in the way that you're accustomed to um, and focusing upon the comfort and the um, normality of the way you're doing it. That's a different thing from saying you're being restricted from worshipping God in any form at all, which is the force of this decree. So if it was saying you have to, uh, no one can worship indoors, that would be a very unreasonable and unjust decree. But it's not restricting worship as such. If he was worshipping outdoors and that were perfectly permitted, it would be an unjust decree, but it would be one that a Christian could observe. Well, I think, again, I don't think that's, that doesn't seem to be the reasoning that Daniel uses, because he could, he could continue his prayers uh, completely in private without having any kind of, uh, with, you know, nobody know about it. He could, he could do it without being detected if he wanted to. Uh, and he decides not to do that. He just continues to do what he has always done. Uh, and it, it seems to me like that's the, yeah, it's, it's, it's not about, uh, he's not adjusting to the, and you, again, I, maybe this was James's point. Darius could make the point, well, this is for the, this is for public order for the sake of public peace. And Daniel is, uh, maybe, yeah, I think this was James's point that Daniel is violating a public order that was for the safety of the, of the kingdom because he's trying to unify the kingdom. So I guess I'm, I'm not buying that your reasoning is reflecting what's actually in the text. I mean, if you were just adjusting to the situation, um, I mean, the adjustment would require disobeying the decree if he's going to continue to worship God. Um, what we're talking about is the fact that the decree explicitly restricts or opposes the activity that he's supposed to be engaging in as a faithful Jew. Um, in the case of, for instance, pandemic restrictions by our governments, it's a very different situation. No one's saying you can't do worship. Um, you can worship in different circumstances, uncomfortable ones perhaps, and restricted ones, but you can still worship. It's not as if um, worship is being specifically denied. And there are many churches that continue to meet under difficult circumstances. And there are questions of justice and other things like that that can be involved, but it is a very different sort of decree. Yeah, I guess I'd, I'm not seeing that as dramatic a difference. I understand the distinction you're drawing, but uh, it seems like uh, a decree, uh, as long as the decree has a broader intention than just restricting worship, it seems like you're saying we should uh, we should comply with it, or you're saying that that should be a factor in considering whether we comply with it. Maybe that's the point. But uh, I guess I, I, I don't I think... think I think my point is more the fact that if you can... I mean, there are reasons why um, 
these the law doesn't have to be just for us to observe it. I mean, we submit to our authorities even when they make unjust laws. If they make laws that are directly contrary to God's law, then we resist. Um, if they make unjust laws that make things difficult for us um, in certain aspects of our worship, or if they make laws that may be just um, imprudent, um, or if they have restrictions that are designed for good reasons, but we find them onerous, that is not sufficient grounds for civil disobedience, particularly if there are ways in which we can continue to worship God and worship God publicly, but just in slightly less comfort. Um, Daniel's position is very different from that. Well, I, I hear that, Alistair, and I think I agree with you mostly, but we should also remember what we talked about earlier, and that is there are always these unintended consequences that go along with these, uh, these big laws. Uh, so in the pandemic, for example, um, laws that were intended to keep people safe, um, understandably, ended up being applied in all sorts of, uh, oh, just strange ways uh, or not applied. And so Christians, a lot of Christian churches had to make decisions about what they were going to do or not do. And individual local kind of churches or local denominations being, you know, as as governments had to decide whether they were going to uh, obey these particular laws, especially when they ended up having consequences that the uh, the state or the county or the federal government didn't really anticipate. And also they ended up being applied in, uh, in, in ways that were inconsistent. One thing about Daniel's approach here, um, related to some of the things we've been discussing, but also moving to other issues, is the way he doesn't vary from what he always did. This is not, um, he doesn't make a public protest of this, but nor does he shrink back to um, do these things in some sort of hiding. He continues in his regular activity and the satraps try and trap him within his situation, um, knowing his custom. But he's not going out to cause a scene, but nor is he trying to shrink back. Um, and that standing of his ground is an interesting one. Um, it, it's neither one approach of provocation, um, nor is it an approach of, um, of fear. I wonder if that's what's behind uh, Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews in Hebrews 11.33, where he says that by faith people stopped the mouths of lions, surely a reference to Daniel here. And maybe that's the faith that we see here. Because Daniel himself says that God sends his angel to uh, shut the mouths of the lions. But then uh, Paul says that it's Daniel's faith. It's probably just this uh, this loyal, uh, consistent uh, trust in God that ends up God answering with his angel that he sends to stop the mouth of the lions. Yeah, and he says that the angel was sent because the because God had found him innocent. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a uh, there's a there's a kind of uh, lux talionis symmetry to uh, Daniel's rescue and Daniel's actions. He did nothing. Uh, he he was the Lord found him innocent, and so the the lions, as it were, found him innocent. But he also protests that he had no 
uh, he hadn't done any harm to uh, the king either. His uh, he violated the statute, but violating the statute and doing harm to the king are two two different things. He's not he's not undermining the king's authority in any way by disobeying a uh, uh, an over over overweening decree. It's interesting that he he uh, defends himself in, in both directions. Obviously, God found him innocent, and his resurrection, as it were, from the the lion's den as a kind of vindication, a uh, public declaration of his innocence. But he goes on to say that he had no uh, committed committed no crime against the king either. Which is quite similar to Paul's defence, isn't it? When we were going through Acts, he was quite explicit that not only was what he was doing in keeping with Judaism properly understood, but it was it was also completely within uh, legal bounds as far as the Roman law was concerned. And so there seems quite a symmetry there. So what are we going to do about um, <clears throat> all the satraps being thrown into the den with their children and their wives. Well, clearly, there's a. This is part of the Lex Talionis conclusion. It's part of the the comic, comic conclusion of the story, uh, where the those who try to eat the pieces of Daniel are themselves eaten. Mm-hmm. Those who make accusations are the ones who are found guilty. So you have those kind of reversals that are going on. I, I'm put in mind of uh, kind of the the harem regulations of the conquest. That it's not just. Um, it's not just the fighting men who are put to death in, uh, at least in certain cities during the conquest, but men, women, and children all are are destroyed. Uh, so there's a, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have an explanation for why that kind of harem regulation would be applied here, but it seems it's, it resembles that at least, and at least makes you realize. Uh, I think that brings out the fact that this is divine judgment against them. That uh, he's wiping out not only the those satraps, but he's he's uh, you know he's bringing an end to their and to to their future by destroying their wives and children as well. It's also similar to the rebellion of Korah, where yeah. they're all swallowed up with their families because Korah rebels against the Lord's anointed against Moses, and here these satraps are ultimately all about getting daniel that's the whole, that was the whole point of all of this and so there because it's he's the lord's prophet um you know everybody's implicated it's a covenantal kind of curse and punishment yeah that's right i mean they are representatives of their households i guess these um uh these satraps and um of broader territories who will, as a whole, suffer the consequences of raising themselves up um, against God. Another thing to bear in mind is the possible extent to which their wives and children have been complicit. I mean, if you think of like Esther's story, for instance, Haman goes back and consults with his wife and his friends, and they actually say, let a gallows be built, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung upon it, you know, and, and so um, I don't want to particularly assume that these people are just innocent right. um, bystanders. You, you know, there might be a lot more of it. Good point. More to it than that. Right. And I think of, think of the example of Achan too, where he's not only Achan, but his entire household is killed after he's committed sacrilege, taken things from Jericho. But that certainly is an example, an, an example of, uh, um, a family participating in the sin. I mean, 
he took this stuff and buried it in his tent. So uh, his wife knew his, uh, the whole family knew what he had done. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point that there's, we shouldn't assume that they're, they're innocent and they're being judged simply for the sins of their fathers and husbands. Daniel, if we're thinking about the connection between the lion's den and the situation of exile, Daniel throughout the book has been the faithful exile, um, the person who's cut off from Judah, but has been tested and again and again being proved to be faithful. And I wonder to what extent we should see Daniel's situation here and the situation of his opponents as speaking to the relationship between the faithful Jews in the situation of exile and those who were mistreating them within that situation and how they should, since they've touched the devoted people of the Lord and sought to destroy them, that they themselves are going to be set apart for destruction, that this is not just speaking to these individuals who are opposed to Daniel, but to the larger peoples and um, opponents of the Jews more generally within the situation of exile. The, the chapter concludes with another decree, uh, and it's both a decree that's sent out to the people's nations and tongues that are in the land that uh, Darius rules, and also a kind of confession, kind of like the other confessions that we've seen from different rulers throughout throughout Daniel. We've seen this accumulating number of professions of the the power of the living God, the, his his eternal dominion, his kingdom. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has confessed that, um, and we so uh, we we see this. Jeff was saying either in this episode or the previous episode that uh, the 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 goal is for Israel to uh, do good works so their light will shine and that will bring praise to God from among the Gentiles, and we see that happening again and again in the Book of Daniel. But it's it's it is also a decree. Uh, verse twenty six makes that explicit, uh, and. Uh, so it's a it's another it's another statute that's being enacted, and so you know at either end of this chapter we have Daniel's heroism is certainly a central theme of the chapter, but we also have the effect of Daniel's heroic resistance on the kingdom of Persia um, and on the law of Persia. That's and that's been a constant theme of Daniel as well as the as the Jews refuse to uh, you know the three friends refuse to bow to the image, and as Daniel. Faithfully and uh, faithfully interprets the uh, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you have a shift and a transformation of the structures of these uh, Gentile empires and the laws of the Gentile empires. That's the frame around this chapter: a, a bad decree prohibiting worship, and then a decree uh, requiring a homage and respect and fear to the God of Daniel. So that's the move we're looking at, and frequently it's this is what we're frequently looking at in the exilic stories. Esther is the same way. We have the elevation of Mordecai right at the end of the book of Esther. Uh, they're, they're about the transformation of these Gentile empires and Jews being elevated into positions of authority uh, and laws and statutes being changed and kings being changed. Yeah, that's interesting. That feels like it's part of a bigger picture in that it feels like having men like Joseph, Daniel, Mordecai has the kind of, has the effect of staying this anti-semitic or just ultimately anti-god tide of empires for a while but that it wears off 
uh, after time has gone on for, for a bit. So, you know, w- once a pharaoh rose who hadn't heard of Joseph, then things got bad. You know, by the time Belshazzar got there, who'd forgotten all about Daniel, um, things were bad. And, you know, we could make similar applications to the rise of Haman and, and um, ultimately Antiochus and later figures. And it, it feels like there is just this inherent hostility to these empires that can be tamed yeah. for a while yeah. by these sorts of uh, authorities, but yeah, not permanently. Yeah, good point. wonder if I could just come back to one of Alistair's points about the way in which Daniel doesn't change his way of behaviour. And Alistair was talking about that, sort of, I guess, in some senses, from a legal perspective. But just in spiritual terms, there seems to be a lot to that, doesn't there? Daniel has developed this um, routine in in quiet times i guess when it before this conspiracy had arisen he had ground this prayer life into his routine and he was faithful in it and he was obedient which is why he was victimized in in the first place because he was obviously a very scrupulous individual and became unpopular and it, it his calmness just feels to me like it, it just flows forth from that he, he's completely unfazed by everything and i feel that his prayer life is is to be seen here not just as what causes him problems but as what gets him through those problems ultimately it's his obedience and and prayer life that has got him where he is in his life and it would make no sense just to abandon it when he most needs to pray There, there would be no logic and i guess it just emphasizes to me the importance of kind of uh grounding ourselves and training ourselves up in good and fruitful routines and and rituals if you like while we have the freedom to do it um with the intention and desire that they will then carry us through the stormy times and and times when um powers and authorities do come against us on that front i'm reminded of a um quote by Oliver O'Donovan in um, The Desire of the Nations, when he talks about the way that tend to think about primarily the community and set the individual over against it. But when the community hits this great national crisis, when Judah is thrown into exile, the individual, someone like Daniel, has to bear the life and the practices and the faith of the community within himself to be the seed from which it could be restored at some later point. And in the story of Daniel and his friends, they don't have a large community around them. They seem to be, we don't hear of them as being more than just a small group of people and not always next to each other. Sometimes Daniel's in one place and the friends are elsewhere. And yet they are bearing the identity of Israel faithfully within themselves in this position of great testing and opposition And yet, this faithful practice of daily um, threefold prayer that's following the patterns of the the temple worship, even when the temple's been destroyed, is something that is preserving that light of the community identity, even when the community is not there anymore. And often we find ourselves in similar positions in a society which is deeply secularised, We don't have the support of Christians around us in the workplace, perhaps, or maybe in other places of our our activity. But yet, if we have truly internalized these practices, 
we can be people like Daniel who in our own practices provide a sort of consistency and a repository of deep communal memory even when that community has departed. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.